0: Hello and welcome to the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guests this month are Kathleen Burke and Michael Bywater, co authors of Is This Bottle Corked? A suitably festive choice for this last Faber Podcast of two thousand eight, since Kathy and Michael's book is, as one reviewer put it, an entertaining compendium of the curiosities, culture, craft, history, and oddities of wine. Before we tackled such weighty questions as which people first made wine, and what rhinos and elephants might add to our understanding of wine, I wanted Cathy and Michael to explain their title. What exactly is a corked wine?
1: Cork means there's a, a, a terrible fault with the wine, and the reason it's called corked is because little bits of air have gotten through the cork, which is permeable. And you can tell a wine is corked because it smells rather like mold or damp leaves as you, you know shift through in a forest. But it, it's really a fungus on the cork. And if the wine is corked, there's nothing you can do with it. You ought not to, not to cook with it because it will just have this musty smell through all of your food. But it's, it's something, the difficulty with corked wine is that it's so common that the estimate is that about 1 in 25 bottles of wine are corked, and if 1 in 25 tins of baked beans were off, there'd be a real outcry. What's,
0: mm-hmm. what's the appropriate behaviour when the wine waiter brings the bottle to the table? And Because I think a lot of people feel anxious about that moment when they're expected to approve the wine.
1: Well, the, the waiter should pour an inch of wine in the glass. Theoretically, he's smelled the cork and he's taken a look at it, so the the question is, does he feel challenged if you're doing this? Well, he ought not to. You're paying for the wine. And you have this uh, um, inch of wine in your glass, swirl it a bit, sniff it. Does it smell bad? If you want to double check, you then take a sip or two of it. And the question is, is it the wine, you just don't like the wine, or is there something off? And on the whole, if the wine is terrible in your mouth, you just say, I'm sorry, there's something wrong with this. What I do is say, pick up an empty glass and and suggest that the sommelier or the wine waiter taste it just to see. And so therefore, he will either have to say yes or no, and if no, he'll have to explain why it's not bad.
2: Yeah, I always like the thing where, where people sort of say, no, I don't like this. It's not your prerogative when he gives you the bit of wine and he say, no, I don't like this. I thought I might better take it away, bring me another bottle. And the other thing I love is in, in, in very in over swanky restaurants and an awful lot of restaurants in America, the wine waiter will place the cork carefully in front of you. I never know quite what you're supposed to do. I mean, you say, mm, that's lovely. I haven't seen such a good looking cork for years. What you're actually just supposed to do is smell either the cork or, or the glasses. Cathy said, "You "'Gosh, you soon know. "'I lived in a flat once which smelled of cork wine. "'It was right above the great drain in Bath, "'and these sort of sulphurous exudations came through the floor. "'But as for the waiter, I, I don't know, "'I sort of slightly like the old 18th century way. "'You've got a corked wine, you, you just shove it up his task van "'and knock the blighter to the ground, saying,
0: "'Bring me more, you dog!' <laughs> Let me go right back to the beginning and ask each of you how you got into wine in the first place. Kathy, I know you grew up on a vineyard, is that right?
1: Yes, I did. I grew up in California, eldest of six kids, uh, lots of land, no money, which meant that uh, growing grapes and and picking the vines and driving the tractor and tying the vines, um, that means that I I, I know an aphid when I see one. And uh, uh, I know what a bunch of grapes that are healthy looks like and what, and what disease looks like. It also means that I've drunk wine, uh, not precisely with my mother's milk, but uh, I'm getting close to it. And then when I went to Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley, of course, is quite near Napa Valley, which is the most famous of the Californian wine growing area. And at that time, I had a boyfriend with a 750cc motorcycle and we went touring around Napa now and again on weekends and he drove and I I tasted and didn't have the concept of spitting out at that time Um, so was a very happy woman as I wandered around when I came over here I discovered European wine and really my heart now belongs to to old-world wine to France and Germany and so forth and Californian but on the whole I grew up with it and when you're born liking wine, you just want to try it and try it and try it. I took all these, seems like years and years of wine exams because I decided that what I knew about wine was the same type as if all I knew about music was from reading masses of record jackets you know lots of little bits and pieces and I wanted to put it all together and also I wanted to know why I liked wine I wanted to appreciate it I mean you know if you like it or don't like it but I wanted to know the different kinds of wines and and what the different regions um, could produce the great thing about wine is that it's so intellectually interesting but it tastes so good you don't have to do both it just makes it even nicer at least for me
0: Michael how did you get interested in wine? I suppose at
2: university, because I was on the kitchen committee, undergraduate side of the kitchen committee, so we got to, to deal with um, with the wines. And it was actually quite a humane system, because we got all the stuff, really, that the, 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 the governing body, the fellowship, didn't have much of. We got bin ends, but there's some really, really extraordinary bin ends. And there was also a, the uh, buttery under-manager called Stringer. And Stringer told me an awful lot about wine, because I couldn't really afford it as an undergraduate. And then the third thing that happened, I suppose, was... When i when i married my my former wife one of our friends the family had been winemakers in france and then in australia and then in california and then all over the place for many many years and they gave us two cases of 1971 Haute Bechevel gloria and i opened the first one of these and i thought hello there's a great deal more to this than meets the eye it's a bit like like uh, like going to the fully bergere in the 50s when your only previous experience has been nogging the nog noggin and your teddy bear and you suddenly realize there's a whole new glamorous very very sensual world out there and i suppose that that's that's where i got into it. later on i spent a lot, a lot of time um living in france where the stuff was so much a part of everyday um, everyday culture that, that really was a, it was a totally different experience but yeah I suppose it was
0: I didn't really know anything about it as a child quite the opposite from Cathy we never had it I'm going to ask you another practical question because your book is a is a very entertaining blend of both practical and historical cultural and, and, and curious information it's clear that you think that on the whole today we are drinking red wines too warm and we're drinking white wines too cold
1: yes that's my conviction i mean the the whole thing emerged, of course, the idea that you should be drinking red wines at room temperature. this idea came up when room temperature was about sixty or sixty six and if you drink red wines at room temperature now, on the whole, you're drinking them too hot. they can be muddy. you don't get the the pure taste R- white wines same thing is that if you if you drink a wine too cold, you kill off a lot of flavor, which is why if you're drinking really rot gut two ninety nine bottles of wine, you want to chill, chill it to death because otherwise it will be dire. So that white wines, you want, I mean great white wines, you want roughly the same temperature as a red wine. But that's the thing is that people have this idea that you chill white wines and you don't chill red wines and actually most red wines would benefit from being chilling for half an hour in the fridge and white wines would certainly benefit from being out of the fridge for an hour.
2: It's really interesting because there are so many things that we take as gospel, aren't there? That um, chambray means about what seventy-two degrees, seventy-three degrees Fahrenheit. Exactly. Most people, Ooh. most people have their rooms, and white wine should be drunk to take the enamel off your teeth. And there are all, all these, all these odd rules. I, there was a lovely one in Abigail's Party, that um, Mike Lee play, where this is in the book. The um, the dreadful guest brings a bottle of uh, red wine and the terrible Abigail says, oh, Beaujolais, how lovely, I'll put it in the fridge. <laughs> and we're all supposed to laugh at her terrible gauchery for sticking red wine in the fridge. And of course, no, Beaujolais, a new, a new Beaujolais, the first thing you do is, is is put it in the fridge. It reminds me of a lovely, lovely one that came my way only a couple of days ago, an email missent. It shouldn't have been sent to me from, well, a well-known fellow of a very well-known Cambridge College. Um, and given insight into the preoccupations of the academic mind, the main subject of complaint was the junior wine steward, the junior fellow. Does the junior wine steward not realise that a seven-year-old white burgundy is entirely inappropriate with halibut? And I found myself thinking, well, actually, you know, halibut and a nice white bony would be rather good, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, what you should have said, well, of course, it does depend on the sauce.
2: Now we're getting now we're getting onto food and wine, which is which is a whole another area, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're also getting onto the whole business of social anxiety that surrounds wine, or using wine to to mark out one, you know, one belong, one's belonging to a particular tribe.
1: People who are keen on football or cricket. Uh, are quite happy to uh, to display the knowledge that they have on it. I don't know why wine should be singled out, that somehow it's it's terribly detro to actually know something about it and enjoy enjoy discussing it. Um I like talking about wine with friends who who enjoy wine, and I don't think we're we're topping each other off. I mean, the thing is, you if you try to describe a wine, if you if you try to tell someone about it and you you think, did it have, was it fruity? Um, did it smell like an oak plank all that sort of thing can actually actually pin it down
2: there's a wonderful anthropological term potlatch and potlatch is a display of competitive conspicuous overconsumption, and i think that's that's quite an important one in wine what i think was the petrus mob Uh who will order in a restaurant a bottle of of chateau petrus which is a, a perfectly good wine i wouldn't i'm afraid this may diminish me in everyone's eyes i wouldn't go much further than that and there are a lot of things i'd far rather drink but there's not much of it and it's terribly expensive and so you order a bottle of that and you've got one up on the lads i think this may have been coming to an end over recent months but there was a time when you'd see the the derivatives traders sitting in restaurants ordering bottle after bottle of petrus and there'd be a bill for six thousand quid you sort of feel they might have been just as happy with something a tenth of the price and possibly rather better. But the truth is, what makes the wine, I think, and Cathy, you may disagree, what makes that wine worth a thousand pounds a bottle is the fact that it costs a thousand pounds a bottle.
1: They're what, drinking which, money, as what are saying. They're drinking saying.
2: money, yeah. They're showing that they can afford to spend a thousand pounds on a bottle of wine, and that makes it somehow worth a thousand pounds. The most fabulous wine I ever drank was with the late Douglas Adams, and we shared a bottle of Latache mm-hmm. at a restaurant. Um, uh, and neither of us were abstemious men, but by the end of, of dinner, we still had a third of the bottle left. It was so good, you just took a sip of it and kind of just dwelt upon it. And I saw a bottle of that a few years ago, I remember telling you about it, in, um, in a shop in Sirencester. They just had the one bottle, and it was £345 which was an awful lot of money, and I didn't happen to have £345 spare. But if I had, I, I would have bought it. But not because of the 345 quid, but because I knew what was in it. And what was in that bottle was, was something magical and worth it. 3000 quid? No. 100000 a case? I can't think of anything which would be worth that, that you drink. Yes. I, I just can't think of it.
1: I mean, the, qu- the question is, what do you really like? Now, I would not pay myself 70 quid to go to a f- football game. Yeah. But people will... You know, make fun of one of us, I suppose, for, for in a restaurant, as I occasionally do, paying seventy pounds for a bottle of wine. There's so many wines out there, they're so great, and it's not just because you know, trading boys are willing to pay you know, appalling amounts of money, it's just they're layered and you just let it sit in your mouth and all sorts of flavors and aromas just build up. Uh, the, the, the sheer delicious complexity of a great wine is really hard to match with anything else.
0: This book exists because wine generates great stories around it. That you know, I think you say in the, in the preface, you know, vodka doesn't... You, you don't have a sort of literature of vodka or a sort of history of associations that go with vodka. And one of my favourite stories in the book was the story of Absinthe and why it became popular in late 19th century France. And that was attached to a whole sequence of, of events and, and phenomena that... that um, that embraced phylloxera and all sorts of other things
2: yeah it's wonderful and you see, you sort of you sort of track the thing back and then 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 what i really love doing is telling the story forwards so it's sort of the opposite of history and the reason to lose track, um little chat was going around sodden with absinthe painting those pictures at the moulin rouge was more or less directly because of the development of the triple expansion steam engine and the reason is that there was phylloxera, which was a nasty little bug. Which, um, to cut the long story short, grew up in America. America and Europe were trading vines, rootstocks, and grapes, and you know they were they were crossbreeding all the time. And the journey across the Atlantic from America, where phylloxera was pretty rampant, but the vines were resistant, to France, which didn't have it, where the vine but the vines weren't resistant, took. <laughs> at least a month, maybe six weeks. And by the time um, the vines from America had got to France, the phylloxera bug had died. Then along comes the triple expansion steam engine, the double screw um, hull, and the journey comes down to a fortnight. Well, guess what can manage a fortnight on the open sea? The answer is phylloxera. So out it comes, starts munching its way through the, the French vineyards. The French wine harvests collapse. The French wine industry goes down the tubes entirely. The government say, well, the French will well, we have to drink something. And so they start drinking this, this furious um, spirit with um, uh, uh, Thujon in it, which is from wormwood that makes you go squiffy at the drop of a hat. And the whole Absinthe culture builds up, and next thing you know, you've got the Moulin Rouge, and then you've got Toulouse-Lautrec. And it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the triple expansion steam engine. I love those little sort of, sort of stories where it all somehow ties in. And wine is full of those little hidden narratives, isn't it?
1: I mean, my one thing I enjoyed doing, and this, of course, is part of being a historian, is trying to track back and find out who invented wine. Now, you don't really need much of anything for wine. The wine has the juice inside, and it has the yeast on the outside of the skins. So all you need to do really is crush the, crush the grapes, let the juice dribble out, and wait a few days, and you've got wine. Not perhaps worth drinking, but you've got wine. So the question is, where did that actually come from? And there's a there's a lot of competition for, um, for claiming who actually was actually was the inventor. And there is the possibly ancient Greece with Dionysius coming out of Thrace, the god of wine. The, uh, the story goes that he, um, in exchange for getting room and board, as it were, uh, from a farmer and his daughter, he gave them the secret of wine. And the idea again was that he was to he could tell his neighbors what it was. And he made some wine. The neighbors came around. They drank it. They'd never drunk it before. They started getting drunk. They thought he was poisoning them. And so they killed him. But Greece is, has, has often claimed. It could have been the Persians claim it. Uh, there was a legendary Persian king called Jamshad who very much liked grapes. And he used to have them around in, in large vases you know, to, to, just to, to eat. And one large vase started fermenting. And so he labeled it poison and put it aside. And one of the women in the, uh, one of the girls in the harem had appalling, appalling headaches, probably a migraine. And she more or less lost the will to live, found this jar labeled poison, drank it, uh, part of it, fell into a lovely dream of sleep when she woke up. And this is unlikely, but she woke up and her headache was gone. And so she finished the rest of it. And (laughs) well, you know, and the king found out and then they made more wine. and, And so Persia. Now, my favorite actually is the Caucasus. Because if you um, archaeological remains uh, show preserved grape pips, you know, from hundreds of thousands of years ago. Certainly, wine has been made ever since time immemorial Uh, in the Caucasus. This was now Georgia, then ancient Armenia. There was an ancient Armenian Empire in time out of mind. But what singles it for me is that Christianity was taken to Georgia, and the very first cross ever made was made by crossed vine branches. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not they invented it in Georgia, certainly it was the first culture actually to so celebrate it, and so my award goes to Georgia.
0: The thought that I've been conjuring with since reading your book was that perhaps elephants invented it, because not only did I learn that rhinoceros have very sensitive noses, but that elephants have rudimentary fermentation techniques.
2: Yeah, they chuck fruit into to ponds and then go off about their elephantine business and then and then they come back um, a few weeks later and, and they've got a pond full of wine, which they then drink and, and sort of lurch around and, and, and do stupid sort of trunk tricks on each other and fall over and have a lovely time. I don't know whether they quite know what they're doing or whether they have a sort of appellation controle system or anything like that. And I shouldn't think being corked is something which would particularly annoy an mm. elephant. I was going to say get up an elephant's nose. But <laughs> I think it's rather lovely to think mm. of the elephants going out there saying, ah, oh, time for the vendange, trap, trunks at the ready, off we go. Yeah, make it from anything. But it's them. not really wine, because wine has to be made from the fermented juice of grapes. That's what the EU says. So the elephants can go hang. They're chucking any old stuff in papaya, pawpaw, peaches, you name it, that's going in the pond. It's not wine. It's booze. That's different...
0: In the book, you talk about wine rating systems, and in the world of fine wine magazine, the top rating, which I think is something like eight nineteen out of nineteen point five out of twenty, in order to qualify that has to provoke a sense of wonder and I wanted to ask you if you have drunk bottles that have provoked a sense of wonder in you
1: I have, and unfortunately they are old and they are not inexpensive. An old German Riesling which has best described as notes of petrol and honey, so that it smells wonderfully honey-like, and then on, and then is dry on the palate, or sweet as you wish, it was glorious, or a very old claret, a very good old claret. You just sit there, and it just opens up. I know that sounds silly to hear it, and it just sounds like one is being gushy, but it's very difficult to describe it in any other way. You, you, the, the, the nose changes and you sit there and you don't want to do anything else right then but to sip this wine. You don't even have to be intellectual about it. You can just sit there and just wonder at the, the sheer potency of the the flavors and, and uh, the smells that, that enwrap you. But a very old claret, an extremely old German Riesling, a great Californian, Cabernet Sauvignon, the Californian equivalent of a claret. I can think of a number of wines like that. And an old, an old wine from Alsace. But not for me, an old Australian. Not for me, an old South American wine. Not that there are many old ones in South America. It's, it's the old world, I think, where the, where the generations, hundreds of years in Burgundy, for example, have enabled them to know the proper grapes in the proper area made with with traditional sorts of of uh, methods so that the wine reflects the place where it's made that's a great wine for me
0: let me ask you both in conclusion we're living in in credit crunch times and the average price of a bottle i think in this country is probably under five pounds but tell me each of you either an underrated region or an underrated variety or something you think people who want to kind of expand their horizons a bit without uh, breaking the bank what where where do you think they should be looking at the moment for interesting new tastes?
1: As far as I'm concerned the great underrated region that's changing time out of mind now is the Languedoc, Languedoc Roussillon, because that was famous for huge quantity and appalling quality and now what it's changing so quickly you're getting Wonderful quality and much less quantity. So, if I were concerned about getting extremely good wine, between five and ten pounds, that is just getting better and better, I'd go to the southwest of France or to the Languedoc. I
2: think, I, I was thinking what, what you were saying, Cathy, about the sort of wines which induce a sense of wonder, and it's actually the same thing. It's something we've forgotten about over, over recent years, and it's that area where southwest German. Winemaking shades into northeastern France winemaking, um, and you think of—I hey, think Germany. I think the southwestern German German wines. So there are some really lovely wines coming out of
1: that part of the world now. We all had in mind, you know, the huge plastic bottles of sweet sweet water that German wine was on the bottom, you know, the bottom shelves of supermarkets. Hock, it was called. Uh, it it just—it just ruined German wine for a generation or two. But nowadays, it's much more difficult to find any bad German wine. And the great thing for those of us who are devoted to it is that it's madly underpriced. Mm. For the quality you can get as, as a trade-off of value, uh, go for a German Riesling any time. A lot of people seem to think that it's too expensive to try new wines. Well, how much in London does a pint of bitter cost? Mm. £2.70? Two pints will buy you a, a, a good bottle of wine, so I think the idea that somehow it's too expensive actually to drink something more than you know, you two ninety nine, my bet nois at this point, is just ridiculous. If you start to think about how much how much does it cost for one the one you know movie ticket for example, yeah. wine for the pleasure it gives for the number of people that it can serve out of a bottle, is remarkably cheap.
0: I was talking to Kathleen Burke and Michael Bywater about their book. Is this bottle corked? which is available now in hardback. I hope you've enjoyed these Faber podcasts in 2008. You can find them all on the Faber website at faber.co.uk and also on iTunes podcast directory by typing Faber in the search box. I also hope you'll join me again next year when I'll be introducing more highlights from the Faber catalogue. Until then, let me wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And until next time, goodbye.